0: Do you have something to say? Do you believe that everybody should be enabled, encouraged, and empowered to tell their story? Speaking is power. As it's said, if you can speak well, you can influence. And if you can influence, you can change lives, your own and others. Welcome to the Let's Stand podcast speaking up about speaking out my name is siobhan fitzgerald and it's a pleasure to connect with you today series two what can you expect well in series two i'm going to explore 21st century skills and change making skills of creativity, empathy, leadership, teamwork, well-being and innovation in education and life beyond education and how these vital life enhancing skills link and intersect with communication and speaking skills. When I think about the skill and concept of creativity, in connection with schooling and education, I can't help but think about my inspiration and role model, Sir Ken Robinson. In this episode, we're going to have a listen to Sir Ken Robinson's TED talk, the most watched TED talk of all time. Do schools kill creativity? I hope you enjoy it as much as I've done. I first came across Sir Ken Robinson's TED Talk, How Schools Kill Creativity, in 2012, just as I was taking over the position of principal in a primary school. I was blown away by it, and it definitely hit a nerve for many reasons. Since then, I've rewatched it many times and shared it with many other teachers. Ken Robinson, who sadly passed away in August 2020 at age 70, was a British author, speaker and international advisor on education in the arts to government, non-profits, education and arts bodies. Originally from a working class Liverpool family, he was one of seven children, like myself, something we share in common. He attended a special school for some time in his childhood due to the physical effects of polio, which he contracted at age four. He studied for a B.Ed, Bachelor of Education, and later a Ph.D from the University of London, researching drama and theatre in education. He has also received many more honorary degrees, awards and recognitions, and was knighted for his life's work in 2003. He has published many groundbreaking influential reports and is the author of books such as Out of Our Minds and The Element, which refers to the experience of personal talent meeting personal passion. I was very saddened to hear of Sir Ken Robinson's death last year. I've listened to and been inspired by all of his talks that I can access and many of his interviews. I love his conversational style of speaking and delivering which is so appropriate for the important messages he shares. So in this speech, the most watched Ted Talk of all time, educationalist Sir Ken Robinson claims that Schools educate children out of their creative capacities, arguing that we don't grow into creativity, we grow out of it, or rather, we get educated out of it. Defining creativity as the process of having original ideas that have value, Robinson asserts that creativity is as important as literacy and we should afford it the same status. So have a listen to this TED Talk, the most watched TED Talk of all time, and see what you think.
1: Good morning. How are you? It's been great, hasn't it? It's been, I've been blown away by the whole thing. In fact, I'm leaving. There have been three themes, haven't there, running through the conference, um, which are relevant to what I want to talk about. One is the extraordinary evidence of human creativity in all of the presentations that we've had and and in all the people here. Uh, Just the the variety of it and the range of it. Uh, The second is that it's put us in a place where we have no idea what's going to happen uh, in terms of the future. No idea how this may play out. Uh, I have an interest in education. Uh, Actually, what I find is everybody has an interest in education. Don't you? I find this very interesting. If you're at a dinner party, and you say you work in education. Actually, you're not often at dinner parties, frankly, (laughs) if... uh, (coughs) (coughs) If you work in education, you're not asked, you know, and... uh, (laughs) And you're never asked back, curiously. That's uh, a strange me. Uh, but if you are, and you say to somebody, uh, you know, they say, what do you do? And you say you work in education, you can see the blood run from their face. They think, oh my God, you know, why me? <laughs> my one night out all week. Um, but if you ask people about their education, they pin you to the wall. Because it's one of those things that goes deep with people. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Like religion and money uh, and other things. So, um, I have a big interest in education, and I think we all do. Uh, We have a huge vested interest in it, partly because it's education that's meant to take us into this future that we can't grasp. If you think of it, children starting school this year will be retiring in 2065. Nobody has a clue, despite all the expertise that's been on parade for the past four days, what the world will look like in five years' time. And yet we're meant to be educating them for it. So the unpredictability, I think, is extraordinary. And the third part of this is that we've all agreed, nonetheless, on the really um, extraordinary capacities that children have, their capacities for innovation. I mean, Serena last night was a marvel, wasn't she? Just seeing what she could do. And she's exceptional, but I think she's not, um, so to speak, exceptional in the whole of, of childhood. What you have there is a person of extraordinary dedication who found a talent. And my contention is all kids have tremendous talents, and we squander them, pretty ruthlessly. Um, So I want to talk about education, and I want to talk about creativity. My contention is that creativity now is as important in education as literacy, and we should treat it with the same status. Thank you all. That was it, by the way, thank you very much. (laughs)
0: This is the introduction to Sir Ken's talk in which he manages to summarise the three themes of the conference building to the essence of what his talk will be about, that creativity is as important in education as literacy and we should treat it with the same status. These three themes that he speaks of are firstly the extraordinary evidence of human creativity Secondly, our inability to predict the future. And thirdly, the extraordinary capacities children have for innovation. Sir Ken has a unique ability to weave humor in and out of his conversational style talk in a seamless, natural way. Some of the humor is self-deprecating when he refers to how others might view those involved in education, of which he's a part, inviting them or not inviting them to dinner parties. His style of speaking is very relaxed and conversational as he engages the audience by asking them some rhetorical questions. His use of humor helps the audience to relax and receive the important points he wants them to hold on to and take away.
1: I had a great story recently, uh, I love telling it, of a little girl who was uh, in a drawing lesson, she was six, and she was at the back drawing, and the, the teacher said, this little girl hardly ever paid attention. And in this drawing lesson, she did. And uh, the teacher was fascinated. She went over to her, and she said, what are you drawing? And the girl said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the girl said, they will in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> when... <laughs> when my son was four in England, actually, he was four everywhere, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> if, if we're being strict about it, wherever he went, he was four that year. But he was in the Nativity play. Do you remember the story? No, it was big, It's a big story. Mel Gibson did the sequel. You may have seen it. I don't <laughs> it <was laughs> Nativity 2. But... Um, James got the part of Joseph, which we were thrilled about. We consider this to be one of the lead parts. Uh, we had the place crammed full of agents and T-shirts, you know, James Robinson is Joseph, uh, we had. He didn't have to speak, but do you know the bit where the three kings come in? Now uh, they come in bearing gifts and they, they bring gold, frankincense, and mare. This really happened, we're sitting there and they, I think, just went out of sequence. Because we talked to the little boy afterwards and said, you know, are you okay with that? And they said, yeah, why was that wrong? They just switched, I think that was it. Anyway, the three boys came in little four-year-olds with tea towels on their heads and they put these boxes down the first boy said, I bring you gold. And the second boy said, I bring you mare. And the third boy said, Frank sent this. (laughs) (laughs) What these things have in common is that kids will take a chance. If they don't know, they'll have a go. Am I right? They're not frightened of being wrong. Now, I don't mean to say that being wrong is the same thing as being creative. What we do know is, if you're not prepared to be wrong, you'll never come up with anything original. If you're not prepared to be wrong. And by the time they get to be adults, most kids have lost that capacity. Uh, They have become frightened of being wrong. And we run our companies this, by the way, we stigmatize mistakes. And we're now running national education systems where mistakes are the worst thing you can make. And the result is that we are educating people out of their creative capacities. Picasso once said this, he said that all children are born artists. The problem is to remain an artist as we grow up. I believe this passionately, that we don't grow into creativity, we grow out of it. Or rather we get educated out of it. So why is this?
0: Here we hear some personal stories from Ken's own life about his son and a girl he observed drawing a picture of God. Personal stories are brilliant. They connect deeply with an audience. It's said that what's most personal is most universal. It's also said that facts tell, but stories sell. They sell an idea. They sell An important point. His use of humour again, his quick humour in these stories is keeping the audience engaged and really enjoying his speech. He even has a laugh along with the audience. I believe that humour also serves to break down people's defences and open them up to receive new ideas and in the context of the audience important points the speaker wants them to take away such as in this case the importance of making mistakes and being prepared to be wrong and how important that is in creativity
1: um, uh, i lived in stratford-on-avon uh, until about five years ago in fact we moved from stratford to los angeles so you can imagine what a seamless transition you know this was from <laughs> Actually, we lived in a place called Snitterfield, uh, just outside Stratford, which is where Shakespeare's father was born. Are you struck by a new thought? I was. You don't think of Shakespeare having a father, do you? Do you? Because you don't think of Shakespeare being a child, do you? Shakespeare being seven. I never thought of it. I mean, he was seven at some point. He was in somebody's English class, wasn't he? Do you understand? Really? How annoying would that be, you know? <laughs> 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 Must try harder. <laughs> 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 Being sent to bed by his dad, you know, to Shakespeare. Go to bed now, you know, to William Shakespeare. You know, and put the pencil down. You know, and stop speaking like that. You know, it's... <laughs> it's... <laughs> it's confusing, everybody.
0: Here Sir Ken demonstrates his own creativity, his own capacity to think outside the box by introducing us to a concept most of us probably never did think of before. Shakespeare is well known and studied around the world. But did any of us ever stop to think of Shakespeare as a child and who his English teacher might be?
1: Anyway, We moved from Stratford to Los Angeles. And I just want to say a word about the transition. Actually, my son uh, didn't want to come. I've got two kids. Uh, He's 21 now and my daughter's 16. He didn't want to come uh, to Los Angeles. He loved it, but he had a girlfriend in England. Uh, This was the love of his life, Sarah. He'd known her for a month. (laughs) Mind you, they'd had their fourth anniversary. (laughs) Because it's a long time when you're 16. Anyway, he was really upset on the plane. He said, I'll never find another girl like Sarah. And we were rather pleased about that, frankly. Because she was, <laughs> she was, she was the main reason we were leaving the country. But, uh, but something strikes you when you move to America and when you travel around the world. Every education system on Earth has the same hierarchy of subjects. Everyone, doesn't matter where you go, you think it would be otherwise, but it isn't. At the top are mathematics and languages, then the humanity is in the bottom of the arts, everywhere on Earth. And in pretty much every system too, there's a hierarchy within the arts. Art and music are normally given a higher status in schools than drama and dance. There isn't an education system on the planet that teaches dance every day to children the way we teach them mathematics. Why? Why not? I think this is rather important. I think maths is very important, but so is dance. Children dance all the time, if they're allowed to. We all do. We all have bodies, don't we? Did I miss a meeting? I mean, I think... think. (laughs) Truthfully, what happens is, as children grow up, we start to educate them progressively from the waist up. And then we focus on their heads, and slightly to one side. (laughs) If you were to visit education as an alien and say, what's it for, public education, I think you'd have to conclude, if you look at the output, you know, who really succeeds by this? Who does everything they should? Who gets all the brownie points? You know, who are the winners? I think you'd have to conclude the whole purpose of public education throughout the world is to produce university professors. Isn't it? They're the people who come out the top, and I used to be one. So there, you know. <laughs> but, and I like university professors, but you know, we shouldn't hold them up as the, uh, the, the high-water mark of all human achievement. They're just a form of life. You know, another form of life. But they're rather curious, and I say this out of affection for them. There's something curious about professors. In my experience, not all of them, but typically, they live in their heads. They live up there and slightly to one side. They're disembodied, you know, in a kind of literal way. You know, they, they look upon their body as a form of transport for their heads. <laughs> You know, it's… Don't they? It's a way of getting their head to meetings. If you want real evidence of out-of-body experiences, by the way, get yourself along to a residential conference for senior academics and pop into the attack on the final night. And there you will see it, grown men and women writhing uncontrollably. Off the beat. Wait until it ends, so they can go and write a paper about it.
0: Something I notice, Sir Ken does extremely well and extremely effectively is that he uses humour just before he delivers that really important point. Remember, the impact of humour on us is that it opens us up. It's as if then we're ready and open to receive the important points. While he obviously has the audience in the palm of his hands, laughing along with them even, he is simultaneously delivering and hitting home really important points about education, strong points such as how education systems across the world have the same hierarchy of subjects and also challenging with a provocative and poignant question. Why don't we teach dance every day? All children have a body. Why are we most often only teaching from the shoulders up?
1: Our education system is predicated on the idea of academic ability. And there's a reason. The whole system was invented around the world. There were no public systems of education really before the 19th century. They all came into being to meet the needs of industrialism. So the hierarchy is rooted on two ideas. Number one, that the the most useful subjects for work are at the top. So you were probably steered benignly away from things at school when you were a kid. Things you liked on the ground, you would never get a job doing that. Is that right? Don't do music, you're not going to be a musician. Don't do art, you won't be an artist. Uh, Benign advice. Now, profoundly mistaken. The whole world is engulfed in a revolution. And the second is academic ability, which has really come to dominate our view of intelligence because the universities designed the system in their image. If you think of it, the whole system of public education around the world is a protracted process of university entrance. And the consequence is that many highly talented, brilliant, creative people think they're not because the thing they were good at at school wasn't valued or was actually stigmatized. And I think we can't afford to go on that way.
0: So Ken provides some context here explaining the reasons behind the academic emphasis of our education system. These are some important points in his talk, which the audience are more than ready to receive as they've been adequately warmed up now with humour and their engagement has been ensured through the use of personal stories. His points here make me consider if or how we are preparing our students for some of the job and life opportunities of today, not to mention the future. Think of jobs in technology, jobs in relation to the environment, influencing, podcasting even. Of great concern to me as a teacher is that we may not be playing to our students' strengths and developing those strengths. And my heart absolutely sinks. Mr. Ken makes the point that. Many highly talented, brilliant, creative people actually think that they're not, because the thing that they were good at at school wasn't valued or was actually stigmatised. This is wrong and is surely not what education should be about.
1: In the next 30 years, according to UNESCO, more people worldwide will be graduating through education than since the beginning of history. More people. And it's the combination of all the things we've talked about, technology and its transformation effect on work, and demography and the huge explosion in population. Suddenly, degrees aren't worth anything. Isn't that true? When I was a student, if you had a degree, you had a job. If you didn't have a job, it's because you didn't want one. And I didn't want one, frankly, so. um. But now, Kids with with degrees are often heading home uh, to carry on playing video games because you need an MA where the previous job required a BA and now you need a PhD for the other. It's a process of academic inflation and it indicates the whole structure of education is shifting beneath our feet. We need to radically rethink our view of intelligence.
0: Some of what he mentions here, remembering that this TED talk was actually delivered back in 2006. One would have to say some of what he mentions here has come to pass in relation to academic inflation. More people are indeed getting degrees today, and not just a bachelor's degree, but a master's and a PhD. And what does all of this mean? This is of particular interest and concern to me at the moment, as my eldest child has just started on her university path.
1: We know three things about intelligence. One, it's diverse. We think about the world in all the ways that we experience it. We think visually, we think in sound, we think kinesthetically, uh, we think in abstract terms, we think in movement. Secondly, intelligence is dynamic. If you look at the interactions of a human brain, as we heard yesterday from a number of presentations, intelligence is wonderfully interactive. The brain isn't divided into compartments. In fact, creativity, which I define as the process of having original ideas that have value, more often than not, comes about through the interaction of different disciplinary ways of seeing things. The brain is intentionally, by the way, there's a shaft of nerves that joins the two halves of the brain called the corpus callosum, it's thicker in women. Following on from Helen yesterday, I think this is probably why women are better at multitasking. Because you are, aren't you? There's a raft of research, but I know it from my personal life. If my wife is cooking a meal at home, which is not often, (laughs) thankfully, but you know, if she's (laughs) saying, (laughs) No, she's good at some things. But if she's cooking, you know, she's dealing with people on the phone, she's talking to the kids, she's painting the ceiling, you know, she's doing open-heart surgery over here. If I'm cooking, the door is shut, the kids are out, the phone's on the hook. If she comes in, I get annoyed. I say, Terry, please, I'm trying to fry an egg in here, you know, (laughs) Give me me a break. Actually, do you know that old philosophical thing? If a tree falls in a a forest and nobody hears it, did it happen? Remember that old chestnut? I saw a great T-shirt, really, recently, which said, um, if a man speaks his mind in a forest and no woman hears him, is he still wrong? (laughs) (laughs) And the third thing about intelligence is it's distinct. I'm doing a new book at the moment called Epiphany, which is uh, based on a series of interviews with people about how they discovered their talent. I'm fascinated by how people got to be there. Uh, It's really prompted by a conversation I had with a wonderful woman who most people have never heard of. She's called Gillian Lynn. Have you heard of her? Some have. She's a choreographer and everybody knows her work. She did Cats and Phantom of the Opera. She's wonderful. I used to be on the board of the Royal Ballet in England, as you can see.
0: Making great use of triads, groups of three, a rhetorical device that many speakers make great use of, Sir Ken explains three features of intelligence, that it is diverse, dynamic, and distinct. An alliteration, although you'd hardly notice it because of all the speech between those three words, diverse, dynamic, and distinct. But this choice of descriptors by the speaker, beginning with the same letter, may have been intentional because it can help the speaker remember them and keep them on track, even when they're delivering humour and going off points slightly. And I do believe this was probably intentionally chosen for that reason.
1: Anyway, Julian, and I had lunch one day. I said, how'd you get to be a dancer? And she said it was interesting. When she was at school, she was really hopeless. And the school in the 30s wrote to her parents and said, we think Gillian has a learning disorder. She couldn't concentrate. She was fidgeting. I think now they'd say she had ADHD. Wouldn't you? But this was the 1930s and ADHD hadn't been invented, you know, at this point. So it wasn't an available condition. You know, people... People... People weren't aware they could have that. Anyway, she sent, went to see this, um, this specialist So this oak-panelled room, and, and she was there with, uh, with her mother, and she was led and sat on this uh, chair at the end, and she sat on her hands for 20 minutes while this man talked to her mother about all the problems Gillian was having at school. And at the end of it, um, because she was disturbing people, her homework was always late and so on, little kid of eight, in the end, uh, the, uh, the doctor went and sat next to Gillian and said, "'Gillian, I've listened to all these things that your mother's told me. "'I need to speak to her privately.' So she said, he she said, wait here, we'll be back, we won't be very long, and, and, uh, and they went and left her. But as they went out of the room, he turned on the radio that was sitting on his desk. And when they got out of the room, he said to her mother, just stand and watch her. And um, the minute they left the room, she said she was on her feet, moving to the music. And they watched for a few minutes, and he turned to her mother, and he said, you know, Mrs. Lynn, Gillian isn't sick, she's a dancer. <laughs> Take her to a dance school. I said, what happened? said she did i can't tell you how wonderful it was we walked in this room and it was full of people like me people who couldn't sit still people who had to move to think who had to move to think they did ballet they did tap they did jazz they did modern they did contemporary she was eventually auditioned for the royal ballet school she became a soloist she had a wonderful career at the royal ballet she eventually graduated from the royal ballet school found her own company the julian dance company met Andrew Lloyd Webber, she's been responsible for some of the most successful musical theatre productions in history, she's given pleasure to millions, and she's a multimillionaire. Somebody else might have put her on medication and told her to calm down.
0: Here we have the use of story again. The purpose of story this time is to inspire the audience, a powerful and inspiring story about Gillian Lynn, the dancer, the choreographer. Group of three again we hear here, three short sentences to emphasize and reinforce a point. For example, ADHD hadn't been invented at this point. It wasn't an available condition. People weren't aware they could have that. Hearing the story of Gillian Lynn again reminds me of another story I heard when I lived in Japan in the 1990s. I heard the story of a Japanese boy named Jiro, who was born in 1925. Jiro loved sushi and wanted to make the best sushi possible. He started working at a local restaurant from the age of seven, imagine seven, before moving to Tokyo to study as an apprentice. And bam, Jiro found his passion, his life's purpose, and he made a livelihood of it. He became a qualified sushi chef, in 1951 and in 1965 opened his own restaurant. Jiro's restaurant, Sukiya Bashi in Tokyo was the first sushi restaurant in the world to receive three stars from the Michelin Guide and has served presidents and dignitaries from across the world. Regarded by his contemporaries as the greatest living sushi craftsman Jiro is credited with simple but innovative methods used in modern sushi preparation. Before cooking an octopus, for example, he would massage it for 30 minutes. One of the hardest reservations you'll ever find is to get a seat, to reserve a seat at Jiro's sushi counter. Barack Obama said Jiro's sushi was the best sushi he ever had in his life. Eric Ripert, a famous French chef declared, I've never tasted rice like Giro's. It tastes like a cloud. At age 85, Giro proclaimed, all I want to do is make better sushi. Jiro is the subject of the 2011 documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. At 93 years old in 2018, Jiro was still working as a sushi chef. His net worth was $9 million then. And you might say, well, both of these children, Jiro Ono and Gillian Lynn, whom Ken Robinson spoke about, on different sides of the world. They went to school back in the 1930s, and you know what, things have changed. Really? Well, yes, so many things in the world have changed. But I'm wondering, what has changed in the education systems? Dancing and sushi. Neither, to the best of my knowledge, feature prominently, if at all, on the education curriculum. And yet, for Gillian and Giro, this was their dream, their passion, their unique talent, and became their livelihoods, leading to very successful professional lives, and perhaps, more importantly, very deeply fulfilled personal lives and sustained them into long lives well lived.
1: What I think it comes to is this, Al Gore spoke uh, the other night about ecology and the revolution that was triggered um, by Rachel Carson. I believe our only hope for the future is to adopt a new conception of human ecology, one in which we start to reconstitute our conception of the richness of human capacity. Our education system has mined our minds in the way that we've strip-mined the earth for a particular commodity. And for the future, it won't serve us. We have to rethink the fundamental principles on which we're educating our children. There was a wonderful quote by Jonas Salk who said, if if all the insects were to disappear from the earth, uh, within 50 years, all life on earth would end. If all human beings disappeared from the earth, within 50 years, all forms of life would flourish. And he's right.
0: Here Sir Ken begins to offer us a solution, recommending a new conception of human ecology. One in which we start to reconstitute our conception of the richness of human capacity and creativity. He really effectively uses comparisons to compare how the education system has mined our minds, mined our minds in the same way that we have mined the earth for one or a few particular commodities. What about the rest?
1: What TED celebrates is the gift of the human imagination. We have to be careful now that we use this gift wisely and that we avert some of the scenarios that we've talked about. And the only way we'll do it is by seeing our creative capacities for the richness they are and seeing our children for the hope that they are. And our task is to educate their whole being so they can face this future. By the way, we may not see this future, but they will. And our job is to help them make something of it. Thank you very much.
0: What Ted celebrates is the gift of the human imagination. I would suggest that this is what speaking and empowering our children to speak can do. It can celebrate the gift of the human imagination. Sir Ken finishes with the powerful reminder that we must see our creative capacities for the richness they are in order to educate our children's whole being for their future. In this talk, Sir Ken Robinson advocates in his own unique way for an education revolution to create an education system that nurtures creativity and radically shifts from standardized schools to personalized learning so that we might create conditions where children's natural talents can emerge and flourish. In his unique, inimitable, relaxed, conversational way, he encourages, he inspires, and he persuades us to rethink our views about intelligence and creativity. If you enjoyed this talk, you may be interested in some of Sir Ken Robinson's other talks, which include Bring on the Learning Revolution, Changing Education Paradigms, How to Escape Education's Death Valley. Thank you for listening. The Let's Stand programme trains young people from ages 5 to 18 in the skills of public speaking. If you'd like to find out more, check out www.letstand.ie or email letstandspeakout at gmail.com. Until next time, think about... What is your story? Thank you for listening. Let's stand speaking up about speaking out. I wonder what would happen if you say what you want to say.